there's this palpable feeling that we're connected. It takes a brave person to step out and take an interest in what they are experiencing. And it's not about the task, it's about the relationship, where the relationship plays a key role in the healing process. A lot of it's about taking care of yourself so that you protect your own ability to make good decisions. It is like a medicine in that respect. Hello, and welcome to the Age Stage Podcast, where it is our mission to equip you with the resources to navigate life's challenges, empower you to make critical choices with the ones you love as they age, and enrich your life with a renewed sense of self-worth, self-confidence, and peace of mind. I'm your host, Dr. Cheryl Matthew. I am delighted to bring you this episode of Age Sage, From Burnout to Well-Being with Simon Fox. As the Executive Director of the Adventures in Caring Foundation, an award-winning nonprofit based in Santa Barbara, California, Simon has developed exceptional resources for professional and volunteer caregivers that tackle the challenges of burnout and rebuilding well-being. Simon reminds us that caring for ourselves first is not selfish. It is actually a way to ensure that we are in the best position to truly care for our loved ones. Simon is an expert at teaching compassion and communicating meaningfully with those who are critically or chronically ill. I'm really happy you're joining us. I believe you will leave with a deeper understanding of how self-care can make the ultimate difference. We'll get rolling right after a word from one of our sponsors. Every passage in life has its ups and downs, decisions and transitions, a beginning and an end. I invite you to navigate life's journey like an age sage, fully living, learning, and loving. As we care for our aging loved ones, we also need to make time to care for ourselves. So this is our safe space to share challenges, wisdom, and joy along life's adventure. I'm your guide, Dr. Cheryl Matthew, and this is Age Sage. Welcome to the Age Sage podcast, and I am really excited to welcome this week's guest, Mr. Simon Fox. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. So today we are going to talk about taking care of the caregiver. Is that how you'd put it, Simon? You can put it any way you want, but basically, yeah, care for the caregiver, self-compassion, looking out after yourself so you can look after others. There's lots of different Take ways to look at it. Take your oxygen first. Yep. Oh, there's all kinds of terms. But there basically, are. taking care of yourself when you're a caregiver for someone else. Exactly. You know, there's a saying that sounds so easy. Take care of yourself so you can help take care of others. Mm-hmm. And it sounds so easy to do, but it's so hard to do, especially for people who are caregivers. It is. I mean, there's a whole paradigm that has to move. Because the old paradigm is... Take care of your others, no sacrifice too great, put yourself last, right? That's been around for a very, very long time. So what you just said, you know, take care of yourself so that you can take better care of others is relatively new. And we don't see it that much throughout history. So it, it's coming to terms with that and, and really taking a look at it and even considering, does it fly in the face of older wisdom or, you know, are we going in the right direction here with that? Because there's a lot of hangups about, is it selfish to do that? Hmm. Do people feel guilty for doing that? And plus there's a real high, high bar when you're a caregiver because it's like you've got, the, what do I do with my time? Do I use it to look after myself or say if you're a professional, you say, well, I could be saving someone else's life instead. That's a high bar for taking care of yourself. So it's like you better make it worthwhile. Right. Do I get that massage or do I save that person's life? Yeah. Right. 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 So that's like, oh, that's tough. That's, that's a, you know, and if you're wrestling with that in your, your own head, you tend to default to the least painful position, which is take care of somebody else. Because what we've been trying to do is help people understand, no, there are very, very good reasons, both psychological and even biological, for taking care of you so that you can take better care of others. It's not just saying that. Mm -hmm. It's not just a platitude. 
when you're stressed out, your decision-making gets worse. Then you start making mistakes. Then you hurt people instead mm -hmm. of taking care of them. So a lot of it's about taking care of yourself so that you protect your own ability to make good decisions. Well, now with that intro, it sounds very enticing. I would love for you to tell us what your organization's name is, Okay. what you offer, and kind of a, an intro to that. Well, the organization is Adventures in Caring Foundation, and it was founded by my wife, Karen Fox, in uh, 84, 1984. Wow, so, a long time. Yeah, we have. We have. What Karen was particularly good at, uh, there's gifted doctors, gifted nurses, gifted therapists, and, and family members who have that knack of connecting with other people really well, even in the worst of times. And they have that ability to somehow convey compassion in a way that the other person really gets it, that they really feel cared about. Now, there's a lot of, a lot of us who don't have that skill, <laughs> right? And the question that came as Karen started to volunteer was, is this a transferable skill or is it just a gift? Can you teach it? Can you teach right. it? Yeah. And even today, after we've been doing it for 35 years, people still tend to think of compassion as a fixed trait of personality. But we have found and proven that it's actually not. It is. It can be a trait of personality, but it's not as fixed as people think it is. And it can be learned and it can be improved upon. And you can also lose it. Hmm. So it's to therefore look after it. I would love to hear more about what you found as far as how to teach it right. and how you can lose it. Well, about how do you teach it? How do you get it across to others? Basically, nobody knew. And other people were coming to ask, can they volunteer in our program too? It's like, all right, well, if that's going to happen, we have to somehow show them how. And we wanted to teach this art. And it was purely experimental. We didn't even know if it could be taught. But the benefit we had is that Karen had this gift and I did not. Well, clearly, <laughs> I'm a former Brit. My background's in science. It was very reserved. I had no clue about how to do this, quite honestly. But I was very impressed that she could. <laughs> it felt good. <laughs> right. Whatever like, she was what, doing. Whatever she was doing was like, what? I mean, people would open up to her in, in an elevator that was only four floors. But who talks to anybody in an elevator anyway? I mean, about deeply personal things. And people would just open up and it's like, why does that happen with her but not? So spent many hours tagging along, you know, with actually a yellow pad in my hand, making notes, then debriefing afterwards and figuring out, is, is there anything we can teach here? And we discovered four key principles that were included in each conversation that made it work. And then years later, we tested that hypothesis because we were asked to teach. First, we taught volunteers. And then we were asked to teach professional staffs because in nursing schools, they were saying, well, this is great. We've never seen anything like this. But could you have a video that showed nurses doing this or doctors or in the, in, within the medical model? And we thought, okay, well, let's follow them around with a video camera and see if they're doing the same thing Karen's been doing. And in their own way, sure enough, they were doing the same things all day long. Naturally, they, like a lot of gifted people, they don't always know what it is they're doing that works. Right. And so we had to identify those and then point. Essentially, our, we're taking this, this invisible nebulous stuff called compassion. It's like, what the heck is it? Is it a feeling? Is it a philosophy? Is it, you know, and we've made it visible by filming footage of the real thing, not, not role play but actual caregiver meets patient. There's a golden moment when they connect and capturing it and essentially teaching by pointing to that. Hmm. That's beautiful. And what does that look like? How do you know by seeing or feeling that is compassion? Like Okay. Yeah. Um, you can actually see it physically because when someone 
we we say it's compassion when the other person gets it that you care, that something has been transferred. So yeah, it's nice for you to have warm feelings in your heart, great. But it really goes to work when the other person gets it, so that something's been gotten across. So when another person does feel that compassion, they relax because they feel, oh, there's somebody in my corner, somebody's got my back, someone actually got my best interest at heart. When any of us feel that, there's a relaxation that happens. It's a biological show. So you see shoulders come down. You see them take a breath. You see their facial muscles adjust and maybe a smile. Um, their tone of voice will change. The coloring of their skin changes because the peripheral blood flow system relaxes and it flushes a bit more. So, so all those things, there's this palpable feeling of that we're connected. That wasn't there before. So that's when we know it's going to work. There's something going on here. And then, of course, there are things then, then people make different decisions and they, their well-being improves. So there's all these domains of well-being that the Eden Alternative Project has identified, like connectedness and meaning and growth and joy. And all these kinds of things start to emerge psychologically, too. So that's how we know it's working. It's really a skill that enables well-being. That's the job of it. And well-being meaning a life that's worth living. It doesn't mean you're suddenly cured of something. In fact, the beauty of it is you can have that kind of well-being right to your last breath. So that's the job of the compassion that we're talking about. It is like a medicine in that respect. So with this compassion, is it something that is applied once? Do you find the other person gets it and, and keeps it, keeps that feeling? Does the person caring for them need to continue to apply it? How do the, how do the dynamics work so that the person right. can have well-being? Again, like a medicine, it, it, there's a certain frequency of dose that <laughs> require both quality and quantity. I mean, we've got locally here, you've got between 60 and 80 student volunteers, mostly pre-med. They visit once a week. And so each person they see gets a visit from them once a week, but probably another two or three other students too. So maybe every other day, this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And what matters is the memorability of the visit. Because if that visit is memorable for some reason, then it's a more potent thing that stays with them. That they were cared for and cared about in their darkest hour. Or something was said something deeply perceptive was mentioned, or they found they had something in common. I mean, we boost that impact because our volunteers wear a costume and they, they dress up as Raggedy Ann or Raggedy Andy simply to portray a safe character who is easy to talk to, but also very memorable and instantly recognizable as this is a non-medical conversation. So there's a lot of symbolism in that. Plus, the symbol we're using is a symbol of innocence and, and humility, which always makes for a better listener. And that's never stated out loud, but it is felt. And so that facilitates that kind of conversation, too. So it sounds like if you're saying they, they wear this costume, that would be a different person than a caregiver, say, in an a caregiver and assistant living memory right. care that's there for eight hours a day. That would be a different person than this person that would come to yeah. visit. It's a different person, yes, but the skill set's the same. Mm -hmm. So both can apply these same skills. And they are skills, and they get better with practice. And it becomes in a person's art. It's like the, their art of how they treat patients. So the idea is like how we treat patients is just as important as what we treat them with. Right. And so it's that connectedness. So basically, so the, somebody who is a patient in need of care doesn't feel that they're just at the wrong end of a science experiment. 
there's somebody actually there shoulder to shoulder or heart to heart with them through this ordeal. Mm -hmm. And that's that felt sense of compassion. I love that so much. And part of what older people fear about having a caregiver, being someone helping them with their activities of daily living or eating, dressing, bathing, is that they're a little afraid about how the person's going to treat them. Yeah. So it would be super powerful for someone to show them compassion so that they can get over that fear and receive the help that they really require. Exactly. And that they would feel safe in an environment like a medical environment or assisted living, that they could feel safe in that environment would be really life-changing, life-giving. It's beautiful. Right. There's so much in the medical environment that is threatening and increases the stress just at the time when you can least deal with it, (laughs) right? right? All the uncertainties and even the tactile senses are, you know, people prod and poke and make you do uncomfortable things. They deliver bad news. Dressed in this pretty robe. (laughs) Yeah, yes, hanging out in the back, you know, yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. All the embarrassing stuff that happens that worries you. So it's doubly important for the caregiver to somehow get it across that I'm on your side through this before they engage in all the do for. I mean, we identified three different aspects of compassion. And there's the giving to people who don't have. So if someone doesn't have food, you can give them food. They don't have medicine. They don't have housing. You can give to, and that's compassion, and wonderfully so. Then there's the doing for, and this is where most of the medical model is in do for mode. So you can't do your own surgery. Somebody's got to do it for you, right? Or you can't solve the mystery of your illness. Somebody's got to diagnose it for you. The problem with that is, and then again, that is compassion too. You're, you're in sincerely, you are sincerely helping somebody. But you can get stuck in that in simply seeing caregiving as a series of tasks. And people then start to feel condescended to, a little demeaned, because you're just doing things for them. Right. And everything's focused on what's wrong with the person and how do we fix it for them. And the only time that they're getting attention is when they need something. Yeah. So push the button. I have to go to the bathroom. Right. Push the button. You know, I need, I need something to eat. I need a Kleenex. All these things to, and reminding them they cannot do it for themselves right now, which nobody wants to feel that way. Exactly. And I mean, even a healthy person had to, who had to go through that for several days would start to feel pretty lousy. Right. Because you, well, you start wondering, well, what is wrong with me? And nobody's affirming the value of this person's life. So this third aspect of compassion that we've specialized in is the being with. And it's not about the task, it's about the relationship, where the relationship plays a key role in the healing process. Dr. Elizabeth Ryder at Harvard coined the term relationship-centered care. That's essentially what we're doing, is relationship-centered care. And how do you structure a relationship and improve the quality of it so that it supports the healing? So essentially, that's what we mean by compassion. Okay, you teased us a while ago okay. with the four pieces. I'm now I'm curious. <laughs> All right. What are the four Okay. Four um, parts? I will tell what they are, but you know, just telling them doesn't do a whole lot of good actually because they are a rather abstract and but they also need to be practiced. In fact, that's why we shot video because we could show them in action. Again, compassion's invisible. We we say, you know, compassion's like air. It's invisible and doesn't seem like much of a big deal until you can't get any. And that's when it kicks in. Right. Right. right? So, okay. So what are they? There are four aspects of consciousness, basically. The, the first one, I'll tell them in order because it's the only way I can speak about it. But really, they can happen simultaneously or be woven into a conversation in any order. The first is attention, which is... If you're not paying attention, you miss stuff. People don't feel heard until you're actually paying attention to what they're saying. And what dominates or what controls your ability to pay attention is being interested. 
because, I mean, sure, everybody realizes, you know, taking a class at school, if you're not interested, it's really hard to pay attention. And what some caregivers lose sight of is they forget to be interested in that person's experience. Because the moment you take an interest in, what are they experiencing? How are they looking at this? What's going on in their head? What would they like? And especially what matters most to them? That way you get out of your own agenda and you get a sense of what's going on with them. So that's the step one is the attention is essentially getting it off yourself and putting it onto the other person. And that takes a lot of practice because we are almost trained from birth to pay attention to what's important to us, you know, and are you doing well of your grades or your performance or your standing in the, in the community, whatever. So the job is, is how do I, you know, put all that aside? You can pick it up on the way out, you know, you then get it across and find out what is interesting and what is important at this moment to the other person and be interested in that. That way you get your get attention on them and then they start to feel heard that, oh my goodness, this person's listening to me. But to do that, you have to sacrifice your own agenda, which is often your task list and your things to do you thought you should mm -hmm. be doing when you came into the room. Even the idea of I should cheer them up is like, no, right. no. I mean, who, <laughs> there are times when we don't want to be cheered up. <laughs> I need to tell a joke right now. You need to be happy. Right. Ex exactly. So, or I've got to do this for you and I've got to do that for you. It's like, put all that aside. It's like, what matters to them? So instead of what is the matter with them, what matters to them? I like that. I like so, that. so that's the attention side of it. And then once you've done that, then you can acknowledge what you noticed. So acknowledgement is attention is the quality of your perception. Are you picking up the signals? Acknowledgement is the quality of the message you send. So in which can be heartening or disheartening. So it very matters a lot, the, that quality. And acknowledgement literally means confession of knowledge. So the knowledge you picked up by paying attention, learned, then you reflect it back to let them know that you noticed, that you appreciate, that you validate, that you affirm, all these things that are parts of acknowledgement. So you've picked up signals and you've sent signals. Right? That can be just a tennis match. So you're going back and forth. So we need a way to build warmth, and that's the affection. That which is the quality of connectedness. Is it, is it close or is it distant? That feeling between us. Is it warm or is it cold? Everybody can sense these things, but we forget to practice them. And the affection is, is having a good sense of humor about it. Because especially in caregiving, there's all kinds of dumb, embarrassing, almost slapstick stuff that happens, right? right. right? Yeah, you can get embarrassed about it and mortified by the whole experience, or you can just laugh and go, yeah, <laughs> right. people fart after surgery. Okay, it's right. fine, <laughs> you know. Um, so that helps everybody kind of roll with the punches and be with it the, the way things are. And then the fourth aspect is they're all the four A's, <laughs> attention, acknowledgement, affection, and the last one is acceptance. So that's the ability to be at peace with the way things are as is. Not a resignation or anything like that or not accepting bad behavior or something like that, but it's simply saying, here we are now. This is where we are. You know, mom has cancer. Okay. This is where we essentially, so where we're starting from right now. Can't suddenly fix that. We can take steps to help, of course. But we also have to begin at the beginning and accept where we are in the present, which brings a sense of peace into the room. It's a certain kind of a healing presence that we can feel when people accept us as is, feels very different than the people around who judge us, harsh, us harshly for choices we've made. Yeah, you can actually feel that across the room. Most people can, mm -hmm. especially when they're very ill. So if you're accepting, plus it helps them accept the situation, which allows then steps to grow and change from there. 
So those are the four things that we see gifted communicators use by the truckload all day, every day. And you can weave it into your conversations. So with our volunteers, we actually set it up where they practice it and they get coaching in it. We show examples of it. Uh, because I was just to tell them is, is a little abstract. But those are the principles that build a conversation that conveys compassion from one person to the other. Do you find that those same principles work for paid caregivers as a family caregiver? Absolutely. And I could see where the, the acceptance piece is, is big too, because it seems like part of the when people are not, I'll say, connected or in their heart or is when they really do not like what's going on. Yes. It's really not their preference that someone has cancer or someone has dementia. Yeah. So I could see even that piece alone like brings can bring someone really present. Oh, it does. It's a profound thing. And it really helps the person who has the dementia or the cancer too because that's, that's how they can, well-being can be restored because – it's like the here we are now and how do we grow and move and live from here with what's on our plate versus wishing it weren't so. I mean, that is yeah. like the Kubler-Ross thing about the stage of denial. You know, right, I was just going to ask you about denial. Like how do you move someone or support someone and is it just in their timing just to move from denial to acceptance? You help them by being in acceptance yourself so they can kind of pick it up. There's a wonderful example of my wife. Picture this, she visited this Hell's Angel. She was dressed as Raggedy Ann, Hell's Angel in the hospital, who'd been shot in the back of the head after just walking out on his girlfriend who was strung out on drugs. And he was actually leaving her and she shot him in the back of the head, right? And they didn't think he would live. He'd just been visited by police officers who want to have him testify against her for attempted murder. And he's all torn up about it because, A, he's lost the future he had hoped for because he wanted to build a motorcycle garage to fix motorbikes. And not they didn't think he would live, let alone walk. And he, at this point in time, he hadn't. So he was going through a lot of grief, a lot of anger, all at the same time. And remorse and regret and frustration and every, every emotion you can imagine. And Karen was able to be with him in such a way that within about 20 minutes, because she, was ex she wasn't judging him for being in a drug gang and violence and all that, all the, all the stuff he was doing, because he was actually trying to get out of it. But just by, you know, here we are in the moment, you need a hug. Okay, we can start there. You know, or we can start just by listening to what the story is. It amounted to him getting a hug later, but it was the most incongruous thing that here's this really tough, hard-as-nails guy and who had a very harsh life receiving these four things. Because now we think about it, he's had a tough life. How much his attention has he ever gotten? except from the wrong kind, right? How, how much has he been acknowledged? How much affection has he been shown? How much has he been accepted? Hardly any at all. So people like that we've met actually soak it up more. And so we've used this methodology, yes, like with, with family caregivers, with volunteer caregivers, all the way across the healthcare spectrum, the American Trauma Society asked us to come out to Washington, D.C. and help build a program with them called Second Trauma. The goal was to teach trauma surgeons how to best communicate with the families of trauma victims because they have to give the bad news, right? right? They, right. They've been in the operating theater for hours and upon end and up to their armpits in blood and trying a very technical, uh, you know, their skill level is amazing. And yet, then they've got to go talk to family and deal with these messy things called emotions. And it's a completely different skill set, of course. And so we used this to help them communicate better with the family members. So, And we've used it with hospice care, nurses, palliative care, 
actually, you name it, we've we've done a somewhere along the health spectrum, we've taught it and found that they are universal. In fact, your pets like it too, <laughs> right? So try it flows four A's with your dog, and yes, you you'll find that they'll be they'll train better. That's a great idea. I love that you're bringing more compassion onto the planet. It's gorgeous. So if someone were to want to get a hold of you and get into one of your workshops, how do you offer it? Where do they go? Okay. What do your workshops look like? They can go to our website, and that has resources on it. Um, the videos that I've been speaking of, you can, you can just get a three-day rental and watch it. And it'll come with a little guideline on how to you, – you could sit down with your family and watch it together – and then there's a little guidebook that, or a couple of pages that shows you how to discuss these things with your family or friends, or our students do that too. They just they, they just render video, three of them watch it together, and then talk about it. Because the the videos are not the whole package; they're designed to facilitate the conversation about something tough. And so they go to adventuresincaring.org. Now, if somebody is in the Santa Barbara area and they want to volunteer, there are opportunities there to volunteer. Um, there are opportunities to donate if people want to donate, which would be fantastic. Right. We're a very small organization, and we're funded entirely by donations and, and some small family foundation grants. And uh, the materials we've got that are great for individuals, the, the videos, and we've got a little, little book called What Can I Say?, which is what something oh, everybody great. struggles with. It's like what everybody you, needs. You've got a friend in the <laughs> hospital and you don't want to go because you're not sure what to say. You know, somebody's got cancer. What the heck do you say to them? And so we literally wrote a book called What, what Can I Say? Which turns out to be the wrong question to ask. But that's what everybody does ask. <laughs> the, the question is, well, again, was what I said earlier is like, what matters to them? It, it becomes an interest in what matters to them. It's not about what you say. You can stumble over your words. It doesn't matter. What matters is your interest in them. What's important to them at that time might be very different than it was half an hour ago. I'm so happy that you brought that up because so many people, if something happens, say someone has cancer, some dementia, often friends will stop hanging around or calling and not because they don't care, but partly it's they don't know what to say. They don't know how to be with the person without stumbling. So if they just don't call, then they can't make a mistake. Or people go to the, uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for your loss. I'm sorry about this. And I don't know that that's really, you know, most people that I've talked to that are going through a struggle, they don't want to hear, I'm sorry. Can you give our, our listeners just a couple tips on just to take away today? Like, what can they say? Let me start with not what not to say. Because sometimes just avoiding that is the big deal. Mm -hmm. What people don't want is when, when your life is on the line or your back's against the wall, you're in a lot of pain. I'm sorry, you don't want BS. You want authenticity. Don't use a one-liner. Don't use something canned that you heard or read about. They want you sincerely th showing up, all of you. And really, that's, that's another definition of compassion is that all of you being there, you know, body, mind, heart, and soul, all of you, with your gifts and your failures, both, because they are feeling very imperfect because probably their body is falling apart or their mind is. Fine. We've all got glitches and dings and scars, and right? And, and this is the beauty of dealing with, if you could call it a spirituality of imperfection, where you're embracing the whole of somebody, the imperfect and the perfect, all of it, the messy and the good and the beautiful and the tragic, all of it. And so engaging with them in a way that allows that to be there it's almost as if you are inviting back to the person all these parts of themselves that they've rejected because they were imperfect or they were told they were imperfect. And so you can be that way. So again, it all revolves around what is of interest to them, what is important to them. 
And it's not always communicated in words. Words are overrated. We convey so much more in visually, in body language, or in tone, tone of voice, pacing of voice, and kind of least of all in the words. So visually, the most important, showing up. You're there in the room. That says everything. It says more than any words you could say. He's like, no, I showed up. I often will wonder, Sars, if we talk about someone's funeral, like, does it really matter? You know, it's a long drive to that funeral. It's a flight or whatever. But the friends that I've gone to their funerals, even if I haven't had a chance to talk to them much while they're doing their thing, they will always say later, it meant so much to me that you showed up. Right. And you have to say anything, just like you're saying, but you showed up. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, to you being there and then just being interested in what they're going through. Parker Palmer's got a great line. He said, you know, when the going gets tough, turn to wonder. I wonder what they're going through right now. I wonder what's important to them right now. The moment you ask yourself that question, you're likely to get an idea of what it is because you're looking for clues in the right direction. And, and you get, you'll get a sense, oh, they've been standing up a long time. They need to sit down. <laughs> it could be that simple, right? Mm-hmm. You know, or the TV's blaring. Nobody can hear anybody in here. Maybe I should ask if I turn it down. Simple, basic stuff. Or, oh, here's a photograph. Is this your family? Or who is this in the photo? Just simple situational things can open the conversation. Then it can lead to other things. But first of all, a certain amount of trust has got to be built, even within families, even within people who've known each other a long time. Because when somebody's seriously ill, it's new territory. And they're feeling disoriented, and they're not sure if the people in the room really get it. You know, there's that whole phenomenon. You've got a whole family in the room, and the person still feels alone. They feel like nobody can relate to what they're going through. It takes a brave person to step out and take an interest in what they are experiencing. It may be grief. It may be remorse. It may be a lot of those uncomfortable emotions where people tend to shush and stop the conversation versus being interested. Now, I'll give you a good example. Um, Dr. Jim Scott, George Washington University, we worked with him on the American Trauma Society Project, emergency room physician, right, as well as the dean of the medical school there. And he showed the trauma surgeons how to engage with a family member whose loved one had just been killed, tragically, like an accident or shot, committed suicide or these kinds of things. And he would kneel down with, say, the wife who'd just lost her husband. And he'd look eye to eye and he would say, what was he like? You think you could never say that in that circumstance? This is in the emergency room. They just died. You would never think you could do that, but you actually can. And it's profound. Now, you can't do it in a canned way. You have to be fully authentic. And you have to be fully present, and it has to be the right time. But there's this felt sense. When somebody's grieving, they will either, they can go in two directions. They can go negative and blame the world, get mad at the world, go out and drink, go home and kick the dog, yell at the wife, ignore the kids, you know, and everything goes to hell. Or they can grieve in a healthy way, as you well know, <laughs> Where, yes, there's that period of mourning, but there's also kind of a cherishing and appreciation of that person's life present with all of that, where it becomes really precious. And so that simple question that Jim Scott was asking was helping them go down that healthy road. And again, it was just being interested in what is their experience. Yeah, I love that. So it's being curious and asking them. I had to experience... Just a couple of days ago, I was talking to a person who, uh, who dad had Alzheimer's and it was long and she was, uh, so we had about a 30 minute conversation and he, he had passed away about four years ago. 
And she was telling me how much of a struggle it was and how painful it was to see. But also she was telling me, oh, yeah, sometimes I'd go down to the assisted living and I'd pick them up and, and we, I'd just put them in the car and we'd just drive around together. And we had so much fun. And I was so happy that we had that time together. And when we were, she was hanging up, she said, wow, that was kind of cathartic that because up until then, she was focusing on the last part of his journey, which wasn't real pretty, to look at outside. But when she focused on the car rides with him and, the, and telling me about the essence of who he was, it changed her heart. Right. And it really made a difference. So I could see what you're talking about and just being, uh, as the caregiver or family member, to have those moments. So I, could, I see a lot of value in your training. Thank you. I'm, I'm very interested in checking it out. That's, that's the alchemy of it. Yeah. Where you can actually shift that state of mind for both of you. Yeah. It, it, it's a profound thing. So it, we talked about it first that Karen, your wife, was really good at compassion. She had a gift. And you were a little awkward with it. You didn't feel like you had, right. that was your strength at first. So now, after developing what you're developing and doing this for so many years, do you feel like it's a strength? And... What has been the gift to you to change that? Is it been important to you to be more compassionate? So do I feel like it's a strength? Yeah, I do now. I feel confident and comfortable in being able to go into any situation with anybody and find a way to engage in a, in a way that is either productive or beautiful or brings about more appreciation of life. What's been a privilege for me and why I keep doing it is when I see it passed on, especially to young people, they, they come in, they learn these skills over a weekend training, and then they are dispatched to various skilled nursing or assisted living facilities to visit once a week. In six months, they're different people. We see them transform before our very eyes from... I mean, this is 18 to 22-year-olds befriending people who are four or five times their age who are in very frail condition, often hard of hearing, usually in pain, often confused, chronically ill for various reasons, and finding a way to finding what they've got in common. It's a remarkable thing. But not only that, once they've done that, they suddenly realize they can talk to anybody. So instead of being locked in their peer group or their own little cool circle, they realize, oh, anybody. I mean, it really is like a true rite of passage where you equip young people to function in the adult world and deal with the tough stuff, you know, life, death, suffering, you know, but deal with it constructively, deal with it in a way that enriches life. Not just, oh, let's prevent all the suffering. That'll, that'll never happen. So how do we work with it intelligently in a way that brings wisdom and appreciation out of it? So to see young people at, before they go to medical school and get these skills is a great thing. And what I've been very proud of is that we deliberately designed this to be so memorable, so powerful that it could survive medical school which tends to, <laughs> tends to want it. That's a, that's a high bar there. It is. And, and we've, we've done it because we have students who volunteered with us 25 years ago who are now mid-career. In fact, not just practicing this, they're teaching it to their students. So, yeah, so I, I'm thrilled about that. And it has changed my life in that way, that whether someone is in fully fit and in the peak of health or whether on their deathbed, I can go anywhere to any emotional level and find a way to engage that brings peace or appreciation or enriches it in some way. So, yeah. It's I'm gorgeous. gorgeous. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I, I, I don't say that because we're doing it. It's because, because it is. It's, it's the real stuff. We deal with compassion, or L-O-V-E, as an energy, as a force for good, 
not some static trait of personality, but a beautiful power that can enrich people's lives if we learn to harness it in some way. So that's that's our goal and our dream, and we're taking our own modest steps in that direction. Well, you've given us so many tools already and takeaways today. So thank you for that. And I would love for you to tell the audience, the listeners, how they can participate in your workshops, what workshops you have available, how to reach out to you. We have uh, trainings for our own volunteers locally. If people are local, they are welcome to participate. So if you're you're in Santa Barbara, California, yes, in gorgeous Santa Barbara, (laughs) you can come do the volunteer training. You can. Okay. If you're anywhere else, anywhere else, you can. You in the world, you can use our educational materials to teach compassion to your own people or to yourself. And that's why we have these videos that you can either. I mean, we can send you a hard copy disc, but who does that anymore? So we have streaming, and we we just created. We just spent the last year and a half putting a, together this beautiful online course called Oxygen for Caregivers which goes back to our point about how do caregivers look after themselves? Because that's the question is, okay, we're doing all this great stuff for others. How do we also apply that same compassion to ourselves so that it sustains our capacity to care? Because there is such a thing as compassion fatigue, and and actually it afflicts the, the most caring and most dedicated people most. So it's like, how do we protect them? We, we need those people. And we, how do we protect our ability to care over the length of a career? So the, the Oxygen for Caregivers project also reframes something where most education and most occupations are focused on the pursuit of excellence, you know, getting better and better and better at what you do. That's the excellence part. But people confuse that with the pursuit of wholeness. And they, can, they think excellence gives them strength, but it doesn't. An abiding strength that takes you through a career. For that, you need wholeness. Why? Because we're only as strong as our weakest link. And it's that weak link you have to watch out for. And that applies to caregivers. So we need to build in things that protect our decision-making capacity and sustain our capacity to care. And so that the oxygen for caregivers is taken from the metaphor of the airlines and the, the mask and putting your own mask on first. And why do you, why do they do that on the airlines? Isn't that selfish? If you've got a little kid next to you and they have mask drop down, well, you know, you put it, you're on because the brain needs oxygen and brain cells die within four to six minutes without oxygen. So, so it's important. <laughs> so it's important. You, you don't make very good decisions when your brain is starved of oxygen. Neither do you make good decisions when you're under frantic stress all the time either. And so this is why, I mean, medical errors are the third leading cause of death in the United States. Yeah, that's and, a big problem. And burnout has a, got a lot to do with it. Because people right. who are fried or down the frontal lobes of the brain are not online and they make dumb decisions or even poor choice of words that leads to miscommunication and misunderstanding and mistakes and people get hurt. So this oxygen for caregivers training online that you can download will help with all of that. It will. Absolutely. It's an eight hour course that you can take in small doses, you know, five minute, 10 minute steps. And it's long enough to, create a behavioral change. No, it's not just knowing about it. It's practicing it long enough that it becomes a habit. And we also did it in such a way that, you know, there's some gorgeous scenery in there and there's some poetry and there's some breathing room in it so that we wanted the the course itself to reduce stress as you learned. So that's, that's what we've done. Sounds like a wonderful project and a real work of the heart. I, I really, it is. I really feel that from you and Karen. Yeah. That's what you've put into it. It, it is. Yeah. We're, we're using that heart energy as a medicine. <laughs> for, and please, you know, to, to, for the people in your care, but also for you. 
because you can't keep doing what you're doing and without it. And uh, and I'm actually having to walk my talk these days because I've been the primary caregiver for Karen for the last 30 years because her, her life has been, she's had a tough life and she's been critically or chronically ill all that time. Mm. So I have had to walk my so talk. So you've, need, you've needed the oxygen for yourself. Most definitely. And, and really. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and still, still do. Well, yeah. That's really powerful. I mean, you have the first hand experience of what's needed and what you've required to take care of her and take care of yourself and make the journey a smooth one for both of you. A exa exactly. Yeah. And I know if I'm completely worn out, I start doing stupid stuff. You know, it's like, oh, this is going to hurt somebody if I'm not careful, you know? So it's like, it's better. Take a walk, you know, yeah. just something. Um, but if, if people look on our website, there's all kinds of good free stuff on there. And we've made all our courses very affordable and very accessible. So because we, we want to support people as much as we can. All right. Well, I love the adventures in yeah. caring too. That's a fun part of it. It is. And it is an adventure, a yeah. journey. So go to adventuresincaring.org. Right. Sign up for the workshop. Thank you so much. It's been a, Thank been a you, pleasure. Yeah. It's been really great hearing about your program. Thank you for making this world a better place, bringing more compassion to the planet. Much appreciated. One heart at a time. Definitely. <laughs> it is indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. At AgeSage, our aim is to equip you with resources to navigate life's challenges, empower you to make critical choices with your aging loved ones, and enrich your life with a renewed sense of self-worth, self-confidence, and peace of mind. I want to take a moment to ask you to rate, review, and recommend this podcast. AgeSage is a new podcast that we created just for you, but no one will know about it if our listeners don't spread the word. So please take a moment now to review it and share it with friends whom you know would benefit from it. If you have a burning question that you would like me to answer on the show, please head over to agesage.co and leave me a voicemail. There you will also find detailed show notes for each episode, and you can download my free ebook, Advocating for Aging Loved Ones. Once again, that's agesage.co, A-G-E-S-A-G-E dot -E C-O. This is Dr. Cheryl Matthew, and I want to thank you again for joining us today. I look forward to sharing this journey with you.